numbers, and you know, Stephanie talked about it being a long car ride, and remember Bishop last week talked about Groundhog Day as we repeated the census of the new generation, those sons and daughters of the people that died in the desert. And I just found myself thinking, are we ever going to get to the promised land? Did you think that? Are we ever going to get there? I mean, I remember as a little girl going on road trips as a family, and well, um, I wasn't the kind of really like to sit still or sit in the car for very long, and we would be gone about 10 minutes or maybe a little less, and I would say, how many more miles? How long till we get there? Now, to be honest, didn't you think after last week that the Israelites were on the edge of the promised land, the new census had been taken, all the preparation they would have, didn't you think, surely we're going to enter the promised land this week? I don't know. Did y'all think that? It's like a marathon, isn't it? You know, running those first, now marathon's 26 miles, you run those first 20 miles, and at mile 21, there may be people around saying, you're almost there, you're almost there. And if you've ever run a marathon, you know, no, I'm not almost there. I've got a long way to go. There's been some easy miles. There's been some hard miles. But it's just, it can be a bit weary. So why are they not in the promised land? What's keeping them from entering the promised land? And if you've studied this, I know you know the answer to the question about when they'll enter the promised land. But I just want to think about that today. Because I guess it made me wonder why I can't live as a promised land person because I'm believing and walking with Jesus. Why can't I live as a promised land person instead of wandering in the desert or feeling like I'm kind of on the outside and just not there? What keeps me from doing that? See, Canaan, the promised land, it really symbolizes the victory that we can have today living as promised land people. Now, a lot of times you can think that Canaan is a metaphor for heaven, um, but it symbolizes the promise that God gave to Abraham. Remember in Genesis 15, 6, it says, Abraham believed the Lord, and it was credited, credited to him as righteousness. And then he was given the promised land by God. Now, the idea of heaven being the promised land is a beautiful thing, but the symbolism really just doesn't work, does it? Because I know y'all were thinking, you know, Moses and Aaron didn't go into the promised land, so it really can't be heaven. But also, Canaan had at least seven enemy nations. In heaven, there's not going to be any enemies. In heaven, there won't be any battles. And Joshua and his men fought at least 31 battles. Heaven's going to be free of stumbles and struggles and you know, in the promised land, when they got there, we're going to find out it wasn't. Canaan doesn't represent the life to come. Canaan represents the life we can have right now. What God offers us, just like what he had offered the Israelites, because we have been credited as righteous because we believe in Jesus and we're walking with him, and he invites us to enter Canaan. But there are conditions. Now, not conditions for salvation, for entrance into heaven, but conditions to enjoy the life that God has given us. Somebody said in the leaders' meeting that the Israelites really didn't even take over all the land that was promised to them. And you think, why do we not take over all that's promised to us as living with Jesus, with him at our side? I want to live as a promised land person, a person that's set apart who's living wholeheartedly for Jesus. I don't want to live in the wilderness. 
in any parts of my life. Whatever struggles I'm going through, I don't want to be in the wilderness. So today we're going to look at these last few chapters of Numbers and learn some lessons on how to move toward being people that live as promised land people, that life that God provides. I want to remind you of 2 Peter 1, 3, and 4 before we start. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them, you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. He has given us everything we need for life and godliness. And it goes on to say, make every effort. So what we see is that God continues to point his people to the promised land. He did then, and he is now in our lives. He continues to appoint, to point us toward the abundant life that he has for us. And I wasn't sure what God was going to lead me to teach today, and I kind of was going, I'm just not sure which direction, but... He is so faithful. And you know, the thing that caught my eye as I was looking at these chapters was that review of the journey from Exodus to the Promised Land. You know, I think God wanted to remind them of who he was and what he offers and had offered to them all along the way, how he loved and provided and protected them. You know, his attention to detail was amazing. His grace in every response that they had to him we're going to talk about all that in a minute, but what brought me, this is what brought me to the divisions that I have. And so I kept asking myself, what keeps me from entering the promised land or living that promised land life? You know, after looking at the stage of the, of the journey and reflecting on it and knowing that God is present with us, why do we stay in the wilderness? So the four words that I have highlighted in my outline that you'll see if you're looking at it is battle, Settle, boundaries, and provisions. Battle, settle, boundaries, and provision. Let's think about these four things as we try to gain insight into our own lives about why do I not live more as a promised land person, a person that is taking hold of all that God offers me. So pray with me a minute before we start. Father, we have a lot of chapters with a lot of different information, and uh, you always teach us through this, but help us to look at our lives and to ask ourselves, you know, why am I not living more like a promised land person? To look at the stages of our life where you have been, or, or maybe we don't even think about that much, but help us to learn more of what you have for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Well, open your Bibles to Numbers 31, and it starts out, The Lord said to Moses, Take vengeance on the Midianites for the Israelites. After that, you'll be gathered to your people. So Moses said to the people, Arm some of your men and go to war against the Midianites and carry out the Lord's vengeance on them. Send into battle a thousand men from each of the tribes of Israel. So twelve thousand men armed for battle, a thousand from a thousand from each tribe were supplied from the clans of Israel. Moses sent them into battle, a thousand from each tribe, along with Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the priest, who took with him articles from the sanctuary and the trumpets for signaling. 
They fought against Midian as the Lord commanded Moses and killed every man. Now the Moabites were a nomadic people. They were associated with the people of Moab. And God commanded that they be attacked in retribution for their part of the seduction of Israel with the sexuality, sexual immorality and idolatry. Remember that we read about it in Numbers 25. Now the emphasis here is on God initiating the attack. This wasn't personal revenge or a conquest of territory or a lust for plunder. This war, this war was announced by the Lord, not by Moses. The war was not regarded by Moses as motivated by jealousy. It was the Lord's vengeance because of the wickedness and God's continually trying to set apart a people to serve him wholeheartedly, to set apart a people that will be pure. And of course, he continues to want to set apart these people. And I think it also was a test to see if Israel was going to obey. You know, the word vengeance, doesn't that kind of make you feel uncomfortable? And I think when we think about it in our lives, it's kind of evil. It's usually not a good thing. But when you think about it from God's perspective or when God's saying he's going to bring vengeance, it is, it's, it's a positive thing. See, vengeance reflects one side of the Hebrew word that means vindication. And God directs his vengeance toward the immoral, idolatrous people that are going to, he knows, infiltrate and influence the people of God, the people he's setting apart for himself. See, this was God's battle. It was not Moses' battle. And then, of course, we had the sad news that Moses is going to be gathered to his people, and we remember that God had already told him he wasn't going to enter the promised land. Well, the chapter goes on to talk about the fighting men, and they really they didn't destroy all the inhabitants of the land, which we know God usually, and we'll find later, does command. But Moses has an answer, and they keep the young virgin women, dividing the plunder among the people in a fair manner. And, of course, it's recorded the exact numbers of the plunder. And then the men have to purify themselves because they've been around death and dead men, and we know that that's what God had commanded earlier. Lots, lots of details from God about this battle. Lots of details. And in verse 48 and 49, it says, Then the officers who were over the units of the army, the commanders of thousands and the commanders of hundreds, went to Moses and said to him, Your servants have counted the soldiers under our command, and not one is missing. And then, of course, they brought an offering to the Lord. Not one is missing. This is a great indication of God's providence and of his protection. And it was going to provide these armies of Israel with a lot of confidence and assurance as they go into many other battles, as they go into the promised land. Their confidence would be that the battle is God's. It's not their battle. And that's our lesson today. God will always fight our battles. That sounds so simple, but think about wherever you are. God will fight your battles. However, we have to allow him to. We have to invite him in instead of trying to solve it on our own. <clears throat> you know, I think our daily battles are a part of what keeps us from living that victorious and peaceful, abundant life that God offers. You know, we're busy usually trying to vindicate ourselves or fight for our opinions or trying to control a situation instead of really trying to trust God. You know, I can do that in big ways, but I can also do it in kind of small ways. A friend, I was with a friend uh, the other day, and she said something kind of offhanded 
it insinuated I was trying to do something I really wasn't trying to do. And it was, it was just a small little thing. But instead of just, you know, letting it pass and just asking God to enter in, I wanted to say what I thought about that and kind of vindicate myself. I don't know if y'all can resonate with that at all, but that's just a small way, a small indication of how don't we try to fight our own battles? I mean, I get amazed at myself. Or, you know, I think it can be bigger battles than that. That's a small way that God shows me that, hey, Paula, you're trying to control your own life, and it's not your life to control. But what about those big battles? What about the relationships with your kids, your husband, or that medical diagnosis, whatever it is? What big battles are you trying to fight on your own? What battles are keeping you from living that promised land life? that God offers? How are you trying to figure it out, control it, maybe ignore it, maybe try to understand it instead of believing God will fight for you? I don't know. I think we do that all the time, and I think trying to fight our own battles is a a real way that we inhibit ourselves from living that promised land life. Well, in chapter 32, we're going to move on, and we're going to see these tribes that settle outside the promised land. Now, did that catch your attention? Settle outside the promised land? I mean, why did they not want to enter the promised land with the rest of the tribe? And as we read on, we saw that they were willing to send some of their fighting men to capture the land. But what was up with not wanting to go into the promised land? Let me, let's read the first few verses. And I lost my place in my Bible. So let's turn to chapter 32. The Reubenites and the Gadites who had very large herds and flocks, saw that the lands of Gezer and Gilead were suitable for livestock. So they came to Moses and Eleazar the priest and to the leaders of the community and said, If we have found favor in your eyes, they said, Let this land be given to your servants as a possession. Do not make us cross the Jordan. You know, for some 400 years, the tribes of Israel had longed to go over the Jordan into Canaan. And it seemed that these two and a half tribe of Manasseh were content to stop short of crossing the Jordan. They seemed to be satisfied or just settling for something less. Isn't that interesting? Now think about this. You know, settling outside the promised land to Abraham showed a disturbing indifference to that divine word, that divine promise that God had given. The word which Israel's whole existence was, was to move into a promised land. They wanted to stay on the fringe. It was not the heart and soul of the land. You know, to settle on the fringes would make them somewhat removed from the center of life of the Israelites, and they would be more prone to be influenced by outsiders. Now think about that. To stay on the fringe or kind of on the outside would make them not really in the center of life with God and community, and also prone to be influenced by outsiders. But as we read on, there was an agreement by these tribes with Moses to fight the other tribes until they had subdued the land of Canaan, and then they would come back to their wives and livestock. But you know, Moses was also concerned that this was going to be a repeat of the scene when the 12 spies went out and two came back and discouraged the whole group. He was worried that these people were going to discourage the others. And then in verse 14 and 15, it says, And here you are, a brood of sinners, standing in the place of your fathers and making the Lord even more angry with Israel. If you turn away from following him, 
He will again leave all these people in the desert, and you will be the cause of their destruction. And then they explained that they were going to join the others in the battle. In verse 20 through 23, Moses said to them, If you will do this, if you will arm yourselves before the Lord for battle, and if all of you will go armed over the Jordan before the Lord until he has driven his enemies out before him, then when the land is subdued before the Lord, you may return and be free from your obligation to the Lord and to Israel. And this land will be your possession before the Lord. But if you fail to do this, you'll be sinning against the Lord, and you may be sure your sin will find you out. And we know that statement, sin will find us out. Sin makes us miserable, doesn't it? It makes us selfish and ungrateful. And... But anyway, they agreed, and they were given the land. But what did they miss, you all? What did, what did they miss? When they had not wholeheartedly followed the Lord, just like we are, we're much more likely to miss out, be influenced by others, and be discouraged. You know, I think when we stay on the fringe of our relationship with God, I think we're not going to have the rest that he offers. I don't know if y'all have experienced that at stages of your life, when you're kind of just living on the fringe. Now, do you ever notice with conversations with other people, when you start discussing a situation and start defining, you know, what we want and our rights and what we will or won't do in a certain situation instead of trusting God and asking him to enter in, do you ever have rest there when it's all about what I think or how I feel or how it's affecting me? There's, there's, there's no rest there. And you know what happened to these tribes? These two and a half tribes, if you read in First Chronicles 5, 25 and 26, it says, But these tribes were unfaithful to the God of their ancestors. They worshipped the gods of the nations that God had destroyed. So the God of Israel call, caused King Pool of Assyria to invade the land and take away the people of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh as captives. The Assyrians exiled them where they remain to this day. So it's never a good thing to stand on the fringe of your relationship with God. I think when we're beginning to think that our plans are better than God's plans, then consequences are just around the corner. And I wonder if you've ever seen that in your life. When we kind of think the way we want to go is a little better than how we know God wants us to go. God wanted all the tribes to enter the land of Canaan. When we settle for the comfortable and we become influenced by the world around us, we lose peace. We lose power that God offers. So my next lesson is that God's ministry inside of us, and I'm not talking about your ministry out there, God's ministry inside your soul is weakened when we settle for just what we see, when we settle for what's comfortable. See, God offers peace and power for all of us who follow him. We heard that in 2 Peter 1. For all who follow him wholeheartedly. So I wonder, what is standing in your way of living that abundant, victorious life? Where do you feel like you're kind of settling? Or maybe on the fringe? Because you really just don't believe that God's in there and going to fight your battle. Where do you think you're being complacent in your life with the Lord? I love to be reminded of John 14, 27. It says, My peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your heart be troubled. Do not be afraid. 
See, I wonder if these two tribes wanted the peace that they thought the world would give instead of the peace that God offered. Where were these tribes looking for peace? What do you think was going on? Were they settling for less because they wanted to be comfortable or they had a lot and they thought they needed to figure it out? They weren't surrendering totally to God, were they? So it's interesting what we learned from these Israelites. Well, the next two chapters, 11, we recorded, or God had Moses record the whole journey from the Exodus, everything we studied from the Exodus to the boundary or to the closeness of the promised land. And then remember the next chapter was all about the boundaries of the promised land. Didn't you love the review of the journey in Numbers 23? It was a remarkable journey of Israel from Egypt to the promised land. There were 42 names of places given, starting in Egypt and coming to the plains of Moab. What we saw clearly is that the people didn't just stay in one place in the desert, did they? They went all over the place. Did God want this second generation? Now remember, the first generation has died. This is the second generation. Did he want them to be reminded of his faithfulness? Did he want them to remember God's goodness in the past so that it could prepare them for the future? His presence will be so apparent to them as they review this journey. You know, our notes divided the journey into four stages. Uh, I read different commentaries that divided into six stages, but there were definite stages on their journey. Let's go to chapter 33. And read, here are the stages in the journey of the Israelites when they came out of Egypt by divisions under the leadership of Moses and Aaron. At the Lord's command, Moses recorded the stages in their journey. This is their journey by stages. And then if we move on after they've recorded all that, in verse 50, it says, On the plains of Moab by the Jordan, across from Jericho, the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When you cross the Jordan into Canaan, Drive out all the inhabitants of the land before you. Destroy all their carved images and cast idols and demolish all their high places. Take possession of the land and settle in it, for I have given you the land to possess. Distribute the land by lot according to your clans. To a larger group, give a larger inheritance. To a smaller group, a smaller one. Whatever falls to them by lot will be theirs. Distribute it according to your ancestral tribes. But... If you do not drive out all the inhabitants of the land, those you allow to remain will become barbs in your eyes and thorns in your side. They will give you trouble in the land where you will live, and then I will do to you what I plan to do to them. You know, great words for us as we walk with God. It makes me think of Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. It's interesting to be thinking about this in this Lent season as we're approaching the cross, but throw off. That's what God is telling these people. That's what he tells us. And then in chapter 34, the boundaries of the the land are defined very much in detail. And then who will assign these lands? 
See, these boundaries, I think, would encourage them as they anticipate what God freely has given them as an inheritance. And it would kind of direct their life, wouldn't it, as they have boundaries around them. It would guide where they're supposed to be and what tribes are where. A lot to be said for the boundaries. You know, it's, we know that it's God who assigns our boundaries, our quarters. You think of that psalm that says, my lines have been fallen in pleasant places. God has put us exactly where we are. You know, F.B. Meyer reflected on this truth that the boundaries of the land remind them not only of their inheritance, but also of their borders and limits. So think about that. Not, not just our inheritance, but our borders and our limits. Because we have borders and limits that God puts on us. So my third principle is God promises his presence on our journey and gives boundaries to guide us. And that sounds so simple, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But he promises his presence, and he gives boundaries to guide us. So I wonder, where are you living outside the boundaries? And you know it. You know it. God's faithful to tell us. And where are you not sensing his presence? What part of your life are you not? And then, like I said, the thing that really caught my attention was this journal, of the journey of their stages and that God commanded Moses to do this. And so, have you ever done that? You know, I know one of your questions asked you to do that. But have you ever recorded your journey? Your journey? You know, those of us who are older have many more stages. But it's a great, great exercise in reflection if you haven't done it. To encourage you to see, you know, where was I living as a promised land person? Maybe where was I living in the wilderness? What was going on? Where was God? How did I hear him? Maybe you're even out there and you're thinking, you know, I don't know that I have stages. I mean, I've, I've been coming to church and I go to Bible study, but it's, I can't really define stages of my life. So maybe it's a good time to, to look back and see if you see that. See if you see the hand of God. See if you see where he's encouraged you. Look at the stages of your life. Mine would go something like this. Finding my Savior and beginning a foundation. That covers some years. Running away covers a, a period. And then a period of clinging to God for my life every day. And then there was a season with a lot of different things that happened where I was learning total surrender. And then there was years where I was just running the race. I was with the Lord just running the race. Thinking... All is well. I'm sure you've been in seasons like that. <clears throat> and then there was a season that I was learning to trust God in all things and to believe in his sovereignty and his unconditional love for me. <clears throat> and then learning total security and worth in him. And just name your stages. Look back and see where God has been with you. <clears throat> you know, I can look back and see where... I was, he was present with me, and I say that, and I, I kind of laughed, and I thought, I think he was always present with me, wasn't he? But was I asking him to be? When was I fighting my own battles? When was I not believing in his protection? Look back over your journal. You know, God commanded Moses to record that journey, so maybe he wants us to record ours for the same reasons. Well, the last two chapters we're going to look at <clears throat> We're going to see lots of provisions, aren't we, for the Israelites in various ways. 
And so if you look in chapter 35, on the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from the Jericho, the Lord said to Moses, command the Israelites to give the Levite towns to live in from the inheritance of the Israelites to possess and give them pasture lands around the town. Then they will have towns to live in and pasture lands. Then if you move on down to verse 6, it says six of the towns you give the Levites will be cities of refuge to which a person who has killed someone may flee. In addition, give them 42 other towns. In all, you must give the Levites 48 towns together with their pasture lands. And if you move on down to 9, it said, Then the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When you cross the Jordan into Canaan, select some towns to be your cities of refuge to which a person who has killed someone accidentally may flee. They will be places of refuge from the avenger so that a person accused of murder may not die before he stands trial before the assembly. You know, I think this reflects God's desire to evenly distribute the Levites among the people. You know, they were the ones that were uh, leading the people, kind of the ministers of the word, so to speak. And he wanted them spread out among all the Israelites. And then it goes on to talk about the protection for the ones who have unintentionally murdered somebody. In verse 32 and 30 through 32, it says, Anyone who kills a person is to be put to death as a murderer only on the testimony of witnesses. But no one is to be put to death on the testimony of only one. It says, Do not accept a ransom for the life of a murderer who deserves to die. He must surely be put to death. Do not accept a ransom for anyone who has fled to a city of refuge and so allow him to go back and live on his own land before the death of the high priest. You know, it goes back to Genesis 9, 6. It says, whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, God created man. You know, I thought these cities of refuge are really a picture of Jesus, if you think about it. Because we can find refuge in Jesus. We know that verse in 26.1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. And there's many more in the Psalms and all throughout Scripture where he is our refuge. Both Jesus and the cities of refuge are are within easy reach of a needy person. No one needs to to, to fear that they would be turned away. Now think about this with Jesus and what he offers. The cities in Jesus are a place where one can live, and both Jesus and the cities of refuge are the only alternative for one in need. Without the specific protection, they'll be destroyed. So think about that. It provides protection. Verse 33 and 34 said, Do not pollute the land where you are. Bloodshed pollutes the land. Hmm. An atonement cannot be made for the land on which blood has been shed except by the ones who shed it. Do not defile the land where you live and where I dwell, for I, the Lord, dwell among the Israelites. And wow, I read those verses because what a warning for us as we live in 2023 when we see how many times we murder innocent people. And I hope as people of God we will stand for what God stands for, and that's life. No matter where it is that we see the murdering of innocent life. Mm. Praise God that he doesn't abandon us. And we see God's provision again in chapter 36 with the inheritance of Zelophehad's daughters. 
He valued those women, and I love that. These were five daughters that didn't have a brother to inherit the land, and so they went to him, and he had an answer for them. But he did want them to marry within their tribes because he was keeping the tribes pure. And you know when you think about it, Jesus came from the tribe of Judah, and that's been throughout. He wanted the tribes to remain pure. He didn't want there to be any question or any less evidence of where Jesus was coming from. You know, the interests of the individual woman were important to Jesus, but he also had the community in mind, didn't he? He wasn't just looking at the particular woman or the particular person. He was looking at the whole community. And I think, isn't that contrary to um, our culture where we want to take the, the importance of one individual and put it above the community or above the people? Lots, lots, lots of different lessons that I'm sure y'all learned when you read through all these chapters. But in these last two chapters, I think the principle is that God provides for all the needs of believers and protects us no matter what our status in life. God provides for all the needs of believers. Now, I'm not saying that you're not going to have a crisis in your life or you're not going to have an accident or you're not going to have different needs if you're a believer. Remember, we reviewed Isaiah 43, 1 through 4, that talked about we won't be consumed. And it made me think of 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 10. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side but not crushed, perplexed but not in despair, persecuted but not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be revealed in our body. We have his presence and his power. So if you did that stage and the questions on our um, notes, where did you see God's provision in your life? And maybe where in your life are you kind of doubting that he's going to meet you where you are? And then I wonder, as I think about this second generation, and this is just kind of an off-the-cuff question, but are we passing this down to the future generations to remind them as you look at your journey of God's faithfulness when maybe you see the younger generation going through hard times? How can we encourage them? You know, from the encampment at Mount Sinai, God gave Israel the opportunity to grow from being a slave people to being a promised land people, as we've talked about. I mean, we've been over it in numbers. He taught them how to be ordered and organized and cleansed and separated, blessed, how to give. He reminded them of his deliverance. He reminded them of his presence. He gave them tools to enter the promised land. And that just reminds you of what he does for us. He gives us all of that. And, you know, by an analogy, many Christians die in the wilderness because they're not trusting God. They won't enter into what he's promised them. You know, sadly, many times we find ourselves kind of living in the wilderness or living on the fringe instead of enjoying that abundant life. You know, staying on the shores of the Jordan River like those tribes did, it might have been better than being in the middle of the wilderness, but... What did they miss? What did they miss? They needed faith. They needed to trust God to enter in. You know, the principles that I had today, they seem kind of a little simple. You know, you probably heard them and you think, you know, I know. God promises that. But let me ask you this. What if you're at the bedside of somebody dying 
What if you've been diagnosed with a terminal disease? What if your aging body is giving up on you or you're troubled by retirement? What if your child is seriously ill? What if your marriage is failing? What if your husband or you have lost your job and seriously there's not enough money to live through the next month? What if your husband doesn't understand your decline in health? What if a child is estranged from you? I mean, name your battle. What if? What if you repeated battle, settle, boundaries, provision? To remind yourself, it doesn't make those battles less difficult. But what if you reminded yourself, he's going to fight this battle for me. His presence in me is going to be weakened if all I do is look at what's around me. He promised to guide us, but where do we find that guidance? We have to be with him and in his word. He wants us to surrender every battle to him. He promises to complete his good work in us. So I wonder, instead of trying to control the situation or figure out the situation or settle it or fight for your rights in a situation, What if you turned to God and just said those simple words? Fight this battle. Show me your presence. Show me your provision. Would that change things? Would you, do you think you'd be living more like a promised land person than a person living in the wilderness? Remember the refrain on our song. He says, we will stand as children of the promise. We will fix our eyes on him, our soul's reward. Till the race is finished and the work is done, we'll walk by faith and not by sight. Let's pray. Oh, Father, as we read all about the Israelites and we, you say they were written for our instruction and we want to learn. So change us with your promises. Help us to trust you in our battles. Help us not to settle for wilderness living. Oh, give us a heart that wants to study your boundaries and long to obey them. And Lord, please help us, whatever battle we're in, whatever situation, to remember you will provide for all our needs according to your riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Oh, it's in your name we pray. Amen.